you can open your Bible to, to Mark chapter 12. <clears throat> We're going to continue on in our series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, I plan out the series uh, that we do way in advance, so I, I, you know, I never know what's going to be going on when I plan certain things. That's definitely the case uh, for this week as well. Um, and I was, my heart dropped a little bit when I opened up uh, to Mark 12 to get ready for um, this Sunday because of um, everything that was happening in Israel, uh, in Gaza, um, which was which is awful and continues to be awful. And um, Mark 12, this parable that Jesus tells has an unfortunate history uh, in the history of interpretation, the Christian church, of um, being twisted, I would say, for anti-Semitic ends to uh, misread this text to say things about the people of Israel, about Jewish people that I, I think are completely, uh, one, not what Jesus is saying, and two, unacceptable in the light of Christian thought. But unfortunately, there's 2,000 years of history in the Christian church where it's, uh, there's, there's quite a few instances throughout history of Christians um, holding to this line of interpretation, to being anti-Semitic in thought and speech and in action, um, violently or otherwise. And unfortunately, over the past several years, I have seen, noticed, maybe you have as well, um, an in increase amongst some people of acceptance of these kinds of, of this kind of anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish rhetoric, and more and more people from that um, school of thought being given a microphone or, or attention. And I, before we read this text, which again, I don't think means often what those people say it means, um, I just need to be very clear from the front that there is no people group at all in the world that it is permissible for Christians to hate. None. Not, it does not matter the color of their skin, their geographic location, the language that they speak, whatever. It is unacceptable in light of who Jesus is to feel that you are justified to hate anyone and to use Jesus' name to justify hatred of Jewish people is abhorrent, it's disgusting, and it's nonsensical. Um, Jesus was Jewish. The writers of the New Testament, by and large, are Jewish. Um, and to, to, to use his name to justify that kind of speech and thought is in action, is unacceptable. Uh, I feel confident speaking for the Christian tradition at large and saying that. And also, at the same time, because of what's going on in Israel and Gaza, it is appropriate, necessary for Christians to mourn the loss of any kind of human life, 
regardless of where they are from, the color of their skin, the language that they speak, their geopolitical boundaries, anything. Um, God detests the murder of the innocent. We, we mourn any human life that is lost, but from Genesis on through, there is consistent testimony in the law and the prophets and into the New Testament that especially when the poor, the defenseless um, children are, are killed, it is something that God hates and that we should grieve. And again, that has nothing to do with political boundaries. And so I would encourage you to guard your heart and your mind from the deception of the enemy that would give you, try to give you permission to hate, despise, or celebrate the death of anyone. That, that is an anti-Jesus sort of ethic. And um, don't, don't be so foolish as to think that you and I cannot be deceived. Guard your heart, guard your mind, and listen to who Jesus really is instead of these other voices that might even use his name to justify things that he would condemn. So we're going to read Mark 12 so we can hear his voice and hear Jesus speaking this morning. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, so the, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is their heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you're true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for sending to us your son, Jesus. We thank you that the son opens to us the way of the kingdom, delivers to us all the wisdom and knowledge that is necessary for life and godliness. God, we pray that you would send now your Holy Spirit upon us, that we would understand 
the mind and heart of Jesus so that our lives would be shaped and transformed and our hands would be open to do the work of his kingdom to the praise of your name. Amen. Uh, there's two stories here that I think involve one question, one theme, and I'm going to work at this question from the second story first, and then we'll do the first story second, if that makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense, it's still what's happening, so just hold on. Uh, Jesus is, this is in the context of the Gospel of Mark, where if we've been reading along, we've heard Jesus three times warn his disciples he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be crucified, he's going to be resurrected. He said it three times, and three times they have no idea what he's talking about. They don't get it, they don't accept it. Jesus is finally in Jerusalem. Uh, in chapter 11, he entered in in what we call the triumphal entry, which we celebrate at Palm Sunday. And he is beginning this series of confrontations around the area of the temple with the people who are in charge. If you listened in these two stories, it just says they and them. And you need to know who they and them are. And you can hear it in chapter 11 and verse 27. It says he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. This is the them that he is talking to. And the dialogue between these two parties is amping up. The tension is heating up. The rhetoric is heating up. They are increasingly trying to entrap him. Jesus is increasingly being confrontational with them. And you can feel the pace of the narrative pick up as Mark is moving us towards the cross, just as Jesus has promised. And here, they are in trying to entrap him in a, in a pressing question of the day. There is a poll tax in Judea, the southern portion of Israel. This is the portion of the country that is directly under the control of Romans. And in Jerusalem and Judea, the Roman government has imposed this tax upon the people. They hate this tax, which you may be familiar with that sentiment. But this is even more offensive than other kinds of taxes because they, for one, it is uh, imposed upon them from the invaders themselves. It's not through some proxy government. It's also forced to be paid in this particular kind of coinage that Jesus is referencing here. They, ha they have to pay with this silver coin that has the image of Caesar on the front and a proclamation of Caesar's divinity on the back, which if you're a Jew is a violation of the second commandment. It is offensive to them. There's already begin begun to be signs of revolt from the very beginning, the tax has probably been in, a, in place for about 30 years, and the people really don't like it. It's going to escalate to the point that in AD 66, there will be open rebellion against Rome for a number of things, one of which is this tax that they are so furious about, and it will lead ultimately to the destruction of Jerusalem, the elimination of the temple, the wiping out of the nation of Israel. That is how hot this issue is. And they want Jesus to take a side. Not because they particularly respect Jesus. That's what it sounds like. They are flattering him. He doesn't buy it at all. He knows who his enemies are. He knows who they are. Jesus enters into this knowing that they want him to either take the side of the revolutionaries who reject the tax, in which case Jesus would be 
providing evidence for them in case they wanted to go to Rome against him, which they do. Or Jesus will be taking the Roman side, which will not play well in Judea, Jerusalem specifically, and will maybe turn the people against him. Jesus knows what exactly is in front of him. And he completely throws them on their head, as Jesus is wont to do. Because he tells them, give me, the, give me the denarius, give me the coin for which you pay the tax. Because Jesus doesn't have one. Jesus probably only has, if he has any money on him, they're just the copper coins of the common Israelite. He doesn't actually carry around with him this thing that is offensive. But who does have it? They do. And Jesus is already exposing them for the hypocrites that they are. So they provide for him the coin that they are talking about. Now everybody sees who had it and who did not. And Jesus shows them the image of Caesar on the front and asks, says a very simple thing. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Well, what, what is Caesar's? He's holding up the answer to the question. It's got Caesar's face on it. Give Caesar the thing that has his face on it. But give to God what is God's. Which is particularly troubling. Because what is God's? Well, what isn't God's? Everything is God's. Where is God's image in creation? Not on a coin. It's on each one of them who's listening. So what are they supposed to do? Well, that's the end of it. They don't know what they're supposed to do. It says they marvel at him. Because he's, he's acknowledged that there is in some sense an obligation and it is they are free to pay a tax that they ought to pay. And yet, there are superseding obligations that they live within and under to God who will put a claim on them in a way that Caesar cannot. And they must honor that obligation above all. What exactly does that look like? What exactly are they supposed to do? They have no idea. Jesus is asserting a claim of ownership by, by reorienting them and their question towards an understanding that Caesar may own the currency, but God owns everything. And they are entitled to operate under those orders of authority, whatever that might look like in their life. Now, the first story has a similar issue at its heart. Jesus begins to tell a story, a parable, which he is reappropriating. The beginning of his parable is almost exactly a parable from Isaiah chapter 5. It's an it's a understood metaphor within Israel because the vineyard is this repeated description of what Israel is supposed to be. And this language exactly is, is from Isaiah chapter 5, except Jesus begins to subtly alter the image. In Isaiah chapter 5, the vineyard is dying and growing fruitless, but in, in this, Jesus is telling, the vineyard is fine. The issue is not the vineyard. The issue is the people who are occupying the vineyard who do not own it. They are not the right. They are not the correct. They are not the legally justified owners and administrators of the vineyard. 
the king is a rightful owner. And so the king wants to collect what is his, the fruit that is his. And he sends his servants to the people who are squatting on the land. And the people over and over, the tenants reject again and again the people that he sends, eventually killing some of the servants. So that the king says, I, I have one that I can send, the beloved son, my one beloved son. Now, in the moment, the people who are listening do not have the gospel of Mark because it does not exist. And they are listening to a parable that sounds familiar but is subtly different. And they don't know exactly what Jesus is saying about this one beloved son. But you and I, the listeners and readers of the Gospel of Mark, we are meant to, to know at this point, so that we are meant to hear Jesus' words and know exactly what he's talking about. In the Gospel of Mark, there is very clearly one beloved son, which is Jesus. And in the parable, the king sends his son, and they kill him. And it ends with a question. What will the king do? What will the king do to the ones who have killed the son, the beloved son? Now, this thing happens when we read. That is the power of reading. This real virtue of reading is that you get to enter in to other people's stories and experience by proxy things that are not happening to you as if they are happening to you. That's what makes reading stories so powerful, especially fiction. You get to be inside the mind and heart of another person. So as you become invested in their story and come deeper and deeper nested into that story, when something happens to them, it's as if it happens to you. Reading in that way can teach you empathy. And when, when you read, there is a power that that has that puts you into the story in a certain way that while very good can be dangerous, especially as you are reading scripture. Because you, by default and by the habit and practice of reading, enter in on the side of the hero. And you just are wooed by the author into being on the hero side and assuming that you are on the hero side every step of the way. That's just the way that reading works. So that when you read the Gospel of Mark, it is tempting to read through, to come to chapter 12 and to think, I am on the side of Jesus and those people, the them in the story, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they're the baddies, they're the bad ones. And of course, I'm against them and I am on the right side. But you cannot, you should not read the Bible like you read other things. Because while it is good to enter into the narrative and let your imagination run with the flow of the text, what you also have to do when you read Scripture is you have to allow Scripture to come back and read you. You are meant to be examined and not merely just be a participant. The troubling thing when you read this sequence of stories 
is that you can exempt yourself from the kind of examination that Jesus is offering. And you can assume, I would never do what they are doing. And that is a mistake. That is how you come to this text and come to conclusions like, Jesus wants to get rid of Jewish people. Because it's the other people that are the problem. It's the other ones that are wrong. Leaving aside the fact that Jesus isn't even talking to all Jewish people, he's talking only to the temple authorities. They are the them that he is addressing. You and I very easily and naturally enter into the same kind of project that they do. It is the project of self-governance. Specifically, I mean it is the project of trying to wrestle, manipulate, and corner God into being your own protector on your terms. What I mean by this is it is easy and natural to assume that you are on the right side of things in your own life at all times. And God, of course, should want the same things that you want in the same way and at the same time. And you assume when you do that that you actually have rightful rule over the vineyard. That God will prop up your own squatter's rights. The people who are listening to Jesus do not think, I am opposing God. What they think is, I am serving and obeying God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they are so deceived in what they are doing that they cannot recognize the king's son standing in front of them. And you and I are fools if you think that we are exempt from that exact same error. It is so, so easy to be so invested in the project of self Defense, the project of the extension of our own wills, the project of our own rule by what we see and can understand. It is so easy to co-opt God, to use him as a strong man, to use him as the enforcer, the invisible divine enforcer of our own wills, that you and I can easily become one of them who would do the same thing over and over and over again. And listen, they are not even crazy for thinking what they think. Who is the covenant people in the land? Israel. Who are the foreign oppressors representing an evil and wicked government? Rome. They are not even wrong about that. And that is the sneaky thing about this deception. Is you can take nuggets and partial elements of truth and just assume, 
I therefore know and understand what it is exactly should happen. And without ever looking to or listening to God, you march off in your own project of self-determination, self-government, self-rule, self-protection. And you get to a place where you are deluded and you cannot even recognize the voice of God himself. And what do you end up doing? You kill his servants. You silence the voices that would tell you you're wrong. You say that they are false prophets. You banish them from your life. You kill that friendship. You eliminate any sign to you to the contrary of your own will. And you rule the vineyard as if it's yours. The question here is one of ownership. Whose image do you bear? Who owns the vineyard of your life? Is it you or is it the king? And what Jesus' parable will make clear, what Jesus' life and teaching will make clear is, the king does not intend to share in any way the ownership of ruling. It's his. And he won't let you have it. Now this... This is where things, if you are a Christian, if you are attempting to follow God, this is where things become incredibly painful in your life. Because you can be wanting even good things. You can be even wanting right things. Or mostly good things. Or mostly right things. And God will not give you what you want. And you, in that moment in your life, when you suffer loss, when you don't have what you think you should, when you've been given things that you don't think that you should be given, you will look outward and you will misinterpret the data over and over and over again. And you will wonder, has God abandoned me? Why has God let this happen? Why can't God just make the, the evil people go away in, in, in good triumph? And you will never even ask him. Are you answering a prayer I did not pray? Are you giving what I did not have the foresight to ask for? Are you exercising your right of government over me? Is it you who is tending the vineyard of my soul? And you will become bitter. You will see more and more people as the enemies of your life when God has sent them to be your friends, to help you in this difficult time, you will be lured into and away from the voice of God who would come to assert his claim on you. He looks at his people and says, it is his image which you must bear, not your own. He's saying to you and to me, give to me what is mine, which is everything. What does Jesus say at the end of this parable that the king will do? What will the owner of the vineyard do? 
he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. There is here a kind of warning. Do not align yourself with the cause of squatter's rights. He will not allow the illegitimate rulers to continue to have their reign. Do not align yourself with the squatters because he is so determined to exercise his own rightful rule and reign that he will destroy the tenants so that what is his will be his all the way down. Now here is the thing. The one who is telling you this story is the beloved son. He does not finish the story of the beloved son in this parable. If you're listening and reading, you begin to ask, that's it? He's just, he's just murdered? He's dead? Where he, he quotes here from Psalm 118, this statement of belief, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Why are you saying this thing about victory when the son of the beloved the beloved son of the king has been killed and there's just this sort of gray spot in the text. There's a blank being left because you are meant to see the filling in of that blank with the fullness of Jesus' story. Jesus knows exactly what will happen. And he knows you and he knows me. He knows that we are the kind of people that habitually squat on the land and call ourselves king. He knows that we are the kind of people who are inclined to reject this one, the beloved son. And what is the response of the beloved son himself to all of those who would hear this parable in the moment or read it now? He goes to Jerusalem. He goes to the cross. And he offers his life for you. He offers to destroy the power that binds you and me to a quest of self-government and self-rule and self-ownership and self-protection and self-defense. The things that still crawl around and prowl around in our own hearts that lend us to constantly being deceived and pushing back and not even recognizing Jesus right in front of our face. He knows that those things will still prowl around in my heart and in yours. And what does the son do to vanquish, to destroy the tenants? He puts himself on the cross, embraces the full power, of the rebellion against this king and rejection of him. He says, bring me everything. Bring it all to me. And he wrestles it down into his own grave so that when he rises, you can listen to and read this parable and understand that the son of the king is not dead. And the stone that the builders rejected, the stone that I have rejected, the stone that I continue to reject in my own self-delusion and my own self-pursuit, even though I have seen him and heard him and known him, the stone that I have rejected will become the cornerstone of my life. 
And now the image that is pressed into my own life is not my image. It is not the image of a ruler who declares himself to be king with no justification. The image that is pressed into my life is the rightful ruler and reigner of everything. The emperor of heaven and earth who has marked me by one symbol. The cross. It is the image of the beloved son. Now that is the coin of the realm for me and for you. So your options at the end of this parable, the question being put to you is, do you want to align with the illegitimate tenants who have no right to do what they're doing, who will rob you of real fruitfulness under the rule of a king who wants to invite others in, as he says? Do you want to align yourself with those tenants? Or do you want the beloved son of the king to give you himself, knowing that you are so incompetent at following him? I am so bad at following Jesus. I'm so bad. I live my life all the time without even thinking about him and just assuming that, of course, God wants me to spend the money the way that I want, to, to think about other people the way that I want, to protect my own rights, protect my, my own standing the way that I want. I live under the rule of I and me all the time. I've been trying to follow Jesus for 38 years, and I am so bad at it. I've rejected him Time and again, so many days of my life. And I, will, I am confident, based on 38 years of evidence, do it again tomorrow. And he has looked at me as one of the ones who has rejected him over and over and over again. And the beloved son of the king would die for me to put his image on my life and root me in his own garden so that it is the image of the sun that begins to slowly dominate and take over the image of my life. You are not meant to hear this parable without the cross. You're not meant to hear the question that Jesus is presenting about the evidence of his own life, death, and resurrection. If today you are here and you have recognize that you've, you've been living your own project of self-protection and self-defense and self-justification. You've even used Jesus' name to do it. The Son would deliver you today. He would deliver you out of the goodness and kindness of His love for you. And you may be exhausted by it because there's so many times you've realized in your life I did it again. And Jesus would look at you and say, yeah, I've always known you. And this is why I died for you. And this is why I will never leave you or forsake you. And today you're here and you've never followed Jesus. You've never trusted him. You, you are living under a delusion. Your life is not your own. It wasn't meant to be. You were not meant to 
bear the load of all that kind of self-protection, self-justification, and self-defense. The world will not conform to your own will to dominate and rule. The frustration, the agony that you feel of that throughout your life is a sign to you that things are not right. And they are not right because you were meant to be his. Jesus wants to stamp his ownership on you. And that may sound scary because you don't want to be owned by anybody. But you need to understand the shape, the contours of his ownership of you is primarily in the shape of a cross. The sacrificial love of God in Christ Jesus is meant to mark your life and dominate you by mercy rather than power. And in his government over you, you will flourish. You'll be more free. You'll be more alive than you ever have been. And until the day where your freedom is fully worked out, until you see him face to face, he will be faithful to you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Even in the face of your continuing pushing him away. That is what it looks like to be owned by Jesus. And that is freedom. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. But today come home and let him own you all the way down. There is no better place to be than in his vineyard. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We hear Jesus' steely resolve, the refusal to let anything else have authority and ownership other than you. It is tempting to believe that we would not be allied against you. But evidence says we we likely have or are right now. And yet the beloved son died for us. Knowing us, he died for us. While we were still enemies of God, he laid down his life for us. God, I pray that the icon of your love, the shape of the cross, would be pressed into your people today deeper, more truly and faithfully representing the kind of powerful, winsome love that is only you. We, we acknowledge to you that we have become obsessed with ourselves by habit and choice. And we know that we're inclined to reject you even by failing to pay attention to you. Would you deliver us and become the cornerstone of our life in increasing measure? Father, I pray for those who are here who have been resolute and committed to their own project of self-rule and reign. 
And I pray that today you would deliver us. I pray, God, that you would mark us for your son. For those who have never loved and trusted you, I pray, God, that today they would see and hear you just a little bit more clearly and understand that while Jesus will not allow secondary or other rulers, his rule is marked by mercy and love. And there's no better place to be than with him. God, would you destroy all the tenants in our own lives? Help us move away from the addiction squatting on territory and claiming it as ours. Mark us by your mercy. Mark us by your love, Lord Jesus, until the whole earth is filled with your glory, the glory of the crucified and resurrected God. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.